You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. We're so glad to have you guys in with us um, for Resurrection Sunday. So as we celebrate the risen Lord, uh, I think the question comes before us, um, what is the meaning of life? Few questions have been so universally asked. Few questions have been the focus of such vast quantities of ink over the millennia of human existence. Is the meaning of life internal? Do we find the meaning of life in the living of it? Is it in the joys and the trials as we walk through them that we find meaning? Or is there some external Meaning, some uh, law or higher power above us that declares the meaning of life. And, and in either case, how do we find that meaning? And how do, we, how do we live according to that meaning? Is it even possible to know that, to do that? Countless thinkers of the past, every notable philosopher and psychologist has, has wrestled with this question. What is the meaning of life? And all the while, year after year, simple, humble, even often uneducated Christians gather not to to wonder vaguely about the meaning of life, but to celebrate the one who is life. In the way he spoke, Jesus Christ sets himself apart uh, as absolutely unique, speaking as one with authority, not just coming to to know the meaning of life, but claiming even to have life, to be life, and to give life. And then, like no one else in the history of this world, he was able to validate those audacious claims when he gave himself willingly over to death and rose again from the grave. On that day, the disciples staring into an empty tomb, Jesus risen victorious over death, the questions about life were forever changed. The resurrection of Jesus was this empirical, tangible proof that Jesus didn't just tell us about the meaning of life, but that he himself is the meaning of life. That he is the the author of life, the giver of life. Outside of Christ, outside of a full understanding of the resurrection of Jesus, all these philosophers, these psychologists and thinkers, they aren't just missing a few pieces of the puzzle. They don't have a puzzle. They missed it completely. They are like men who have been blind from birth trying to describe a glorious sunset. They're like fish that have never come up from the depths of the ocean trying to, trying to make sense of the, the far reaches of the universe. They are themselves dead as they attempt to explain the meaning of life. 
We're going to start next week into a new series. Um, we'll be working book by, uh, verse by verse through the book of Colossians. And, and the whole title of the, this, this series is New Life. That's what the book of Colossians is all about. That's where we're going. Unveiling the, the glory of this new life that we have in Christ and what that means for us. And so this weekend, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, we're, we're kind of setting the table for that, dipping our toes into that water. Good Friday, we saw that our, our death is wrapped up in his death. He took our wrath in our place. He took our forsakenness. Today, we're going to look at the other side of that, our life in his resurrection. What does it mean for us to have life in him? So I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 4 this morning. If you don't have a Bible on you, there should be one in the pew uh, right there near you. I um, just encourage you to grab that, open it up, um, find Colossians. Um, we want you to have God's word open in front of you. Um, I have nothing for you. I bring nothing of value to the table. Um, I have this book, God's Word, and we want to come together to hear from God's Word, not what some man has to say. And so uh, open it up, have it open in your lap. And, and if you don't have a Bible at home or, or one that you can read easily, please take this one. Uh, it's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Um, we're delighted to have those uh, walking out of this place. The passage we're going to look at, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, um, really are the linchpin of the book of Colossians. So um, this is the hinge on which the whole book stands. We're going to start our series from the mountaintop and, and see the view from there. And then we'll go back and, and climb that mountain from the base. Um, we see in this passage that, that our life in the resurrection of Jesus, this, this resurrection life for us. And, and we see it from three different perspectives, from past, present, and future. What does it mean that, that in Jesus Christ we have been raised, we are raised, and we will be raised? So look with me, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Let me read them for us. If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we worship you this morning in light of a, a resurrected Savior who died on our behalf, who took our sin to the cross, faced your wrath in our place, and who gloriously, victoriously rose again. God, we desperately need to know what that resurrection means for us. How? how to understand it, how to walk confidently in it. Lord, would you open our eyes this morning to see your beauty? Lord, would you, by your great mercy, shine in our hearts the light of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ as we look into your word, that we might be transformed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Verse 1 draws our attention to the first uh, and most basic 
glorious reality that those who are in Christ have been raised with Christ. Have been raised with Christ. If you're a Christian, then you have been, past tense, raised up with Christ. But we need to grapple a little bit with what that means for us, what that tells us about who we are in our world. Um, If in Christ we are raised to life, that means without Christ, we were dead. Without Christ, we, we were dead. Life, true life, according to Scripture, is more than just a beating heart. It's more than just neurons firing in your mind. Just because a doctor tells you that you're healthy doesn't even necessarily mean that you have true life. The Bible has this interesting category of the living dead. It does. The living dead are all through Scripture. You see it in Ephesians 2. Paul says, but as for you, um, he's writing to the church, before you were saved in that day, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. You were alive physically. You had a heartbeat. You were talking and thinking, but, but you were spiritually dead. Jesus makes reference to it. Luke 9, 60, he's, he's speaking to the man who wanted to follow him, but said, let me, let me go first and bury my father. What does Jesus say? Let the dead bury their own dead. Those outside of Christ are physically alive, but but spiritually dead. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, it means what you might think it means. Lifeless. Unresponsive. No spiritual breath. No no spiritual thoughts. No action. No movement. Paul talks about this in in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 8. He says this, For those who live according to the flesh, those who are alive in the flesh but dead spiritually, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now listen to what he says here. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who have no spiritual life, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, have no ability to please God. They're spiritually dead. They can't do it. They they can no more do an action that pleases God than a dead man can dig himself out of his grave and run a marathon. It doesn't happen. No spiritual life, no spiritual actions, no spiritual good, none, nothing. Paul draws this out again, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person, as we are born in our sin, according to nature, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. We're born dead in our sin as natural people, unable to understand spiritual things. The things of God, the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the gospel itself. 
cannot be understood, cannot be loved by the natural man because they're spiritual truths. They're spiritually discerned and and we're spiritually dead. Jesus used very similar language with Nicodemus. John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You need new birth. You've not been born spiritually. If you don't have that spiritual new life, then you can't see the kingdom of God. You won't find it. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not a small difference. So often we get these things confused. We're talking about that just this, this morning, right? We have friends and neighbors, and they're so nice. They're almost Christians. No. Well, they go to church every week. Isn't that the difference? Is the difference spiritual or religious practices, right? Does a Christian go to church and others don't? No. Is it that the Christian prays and reads his Bible and the others don't? No. Those those differences are true, but that's not the difference. It's not simply a difference of belief. It's not just that one believes in God and Jesus and the other doesn't. The difference is the difference between life and death. The spiritually dead looks at Jesus. He's not interested. Doesn't move me. He hears the gospel and nothing happens in his heart. I don't care. Or worse, in my case growing up, I heard the gospel and I thought, I can use that to my own advantage. I can play that game if that's what makes me popular and cool. But no love for Christ. It's like going to the graveyard and digging down six feet and opening the the casket and sitting up the rotting corpse and say, see, look at the sunrise. Nothing. Not impressed. Not moved. He's dead. That's us in our sin in this state that, that we're born into dead in our trespasses and sins. We simply cannot see and love and desire the things of God. That's what makes the resurrection of Jesus so necessary and so very glorious. We don't just celebrate that that Jesus rose from the grave and saved himself from the grips of death. We celebrate that Jesus rose from the grave as this grand display that he could also raise and rescue lifeless, wretched sinners from their death. Paul's saying, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you have to understand the significance of what has happened to you. It is no small thing that you have stumbled into this, that you think the things that you think, that you feel the things that you feel. It is because you have been raised with Christ. And notice Paul uses distinctly passive language here. How could he not? You have been raised. Not you raised yourself. Not you dug yourself out. You were raised. Because this giving of spiritual life, raising a sinner from from spiritual death is a miracle that only God can do. It's a miracle that only God can do. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 
Paul puts this, this miracle of the new life on the same level, the same playing field as the very creation of this world. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So picture this, in the beginning there is nothing. And God says, let there be light. And where there was darkness, there was nothing. Light comes into being. In the same way, that same kind of operation of the power of God, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts where there was no light, where there was no life, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's huge. That's, that's catastrophic, earth-shaking miracle. If you can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, if you look at, at Jesus and the cross and, you, and it draws you to see God's glory, he did that. You've been given this light. It's not because of something you've done. It's not because you were more perceptive than the guy next to you. It's not that you're more humble than your neighbors and friends. It's not that you're just a little bit smarter than the average bear. No. No, it's because of what God has done. Giving life to a dead heart. Ephesians 2 Begins in saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And once you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who's at work in the sons of disobedience, who like the rest of mankind are objects of God's wrath. And then he says, but God. Not but you. Not but, but your neighbor came and talked to you. No, but God. Being rich in mercy not because you were better, but because God is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were lifeless and useless, God made us alive together with Christ. God does it. It starts with him, not us. And out of that new spiritual life, this, this light shining in the heart of this new spiritual being, as essential as breathing and heartbeat is to a physical life, the spiritual life produces faith, love for Christ, a heart that, that turns from sin and begins to desire obedience like it never had before. Those things can't happen before the new birth. The heart of stone, those dead in sin, they, they, they don't have repentance. They don't love Christ. They don't hate sin. They don't do those things. They can do nothing that pleases God. Faith does not produce the new life. Faith is evidence of the new life. If you're in Christ, if you're a believer today, rejoice. Humbly in awe and wonder of what God has done. You have been given a gift. You have been raised with Christ. When you were a sinner running away from him headlong toward hell, he reached down and transformed your heart. If you're listening to me speak now and you're hearing these truths, maybe from Good Friday about how Christ died taking the penalty for my sin that I deserve, 
today about this, this glorious resurrection that we've been singing about and the life that, that Jesus offers. And maybe you're not sure. Is that me? Do I have that life? Or maybe you are sure. That's not me. I have not had that life. I have been dead spiritually. But as you listen, these things seem beautiful to you. You're looking at your sin and rebellion against God and it makes you cringe, makes you want to crawl into a hole. You look at at Christ and the forgiveness and the life that he offers and you desire and you long to be made right with God. It may be that God is doing that miracle in you right now. We prayed this morning that that would be taking place today. Act on it. Repent of your sin. Turn away from it. Renounce that old life of living for for sin and self and trust in Christ. Give yourself in full allegiance and joyful obedience to him. And if you're able to do those things, and if that heart of love in you toward God persists and grows and bears fruit, then you know, you can know with confidence That the Lord's resurrection power has been at work in you. That you have been raised with Christ. Here Paul moves, building on that past reality. You have been raised with Christ to then look at the present reality. We are raised with Christ. We are raised with Christ. What does it look like to live that risen life Now, what does that mean for our day-to-day in the present? Look with me. We'll start back at verse 1 and move through verse 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, now into the present, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul continues to build on this truth. Our our life in the resurrection of Jesus, if you've been raised with Christ, if you've been given this new life, then the life that you have now is inseparably tied to Christ. We were raised with him. In verse 3, if your life is, is hidden with Christ in God. So if If being a believer means we have been raised with Christ, having life in Christ, and we want to know more about that life and what it is and what it means, we have to look at the life of Christ. Where is Christ now? Paul says he's seated at the right hand of God. That's huge. Huge. All of the visions and images of God in his throne room throughout the Old Testament The Lord sits on his throne and everyone else either stands or falls flat on their face. The archangels, the mighty cherubim, out of honor and respect as they serve and worship the Lord, they either stand to serve or they bow down. Jesus sits. Jesus Risen from the grave, having accomplished the work of salvation, crying out on the cross, it is finished. Rising again from the grave, then ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. His work done. 
And if our life is intrinsically, inseparably tied to his, what does that mean for us? If you've been raised with Christ, then you have a life that is rooted and, and anchored and, and exists in, in a spiritual but, but, but very much real reality in the presence of God. Like a construction worker on a, on a, a high up building or a, a rock climber making his way up a thousand foot wall wants to anchor his rope to a higher point and tether himself to it. Our life is tethered to Christ. In the very presence of God. This life that you have been given. It's not just that Jesus has finished his work. But he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's sharing in the glory of the Father as part of the Trinity. That's where our life is anchored. By the resurrection of Jesus, this this new life is not just an earthly life. It's not just a new life down here. It, It has connection. It has an anchor in eternity, in heaven. We often speak a bit carelessly, don't we? We talk about how, you know, if you're saved, you trust in Jesus, you will have eternal life. Like one day down the road when you die, then then you'll have eternal life. John 3:36, Jesus says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, here and now, has eternal life. If you you have been raised with Christ, then you have eternal life today. Here and now, we, we have eternal life that is rooted and anchored in heaven. So Paul's emphasis here, if that's true of us, if our life exists in glory, in the presence of the Father, if we have this spiritual life, then we ought to live like it. Based off of that reality of our spiritual life existing, um, connected with Christ in the presence of the Father, Paul gives us a, a command and confidence. The first is the, the command to live the risen life, the command to live the risen life. He gives it in two parts. First, seek the things that are above. And then again, he says, set your mind on things above. I think that's the same command, just given two different ways, a little bit different specifics. If you have life in heaven, then then your life ought to be seeking after heavenly things. Don't don't get all caught up and, and entangled and distracted by earthly things. Because your real life, your true life is is in heaven. You ever had one of those dreams that just feels so real? And you're you're running, maybe you're terrified and you wake up and you're sweating and your heart is pounding and you're breathing hard and and your fists are clenched. It seems so real when everything was in front of you. And the moment you wake up, it's it's gone. It's vanished. you, you You can't get a hold of it anymore. It's over. That's, that's our life in this world. Oh, as it surrounds us and bears down on us, it feels so heavy. It feels like everything that matters is here and now in the physical, in the world. And we get so caught up with it. And the day is coming when it will just be gone. It will have vanished like a bad dream. Seek after heavenly things. Seek after heavenly things, not earthly things. Set your mind on, think about, pursue 
Not earthly prosperity and earthly success and, and how am I going to make a name for myself and a reputation, but, but spiritual heavenly life. Living and, and seeking after what is truly real, what matters. Through Colossians, um, Paul's going to spend the next 12 verses unpacking what that looks like, and we'll take time when we get there um, to work our way through that. He talks about, he opens it, put to death then what is earthly in you. If you have spiritual life, take the earthly things in you and kill them. Put them to death. And he talks about sexual morality and impurity and and passions and evil desires and, and coveting, desiring the things of this world. He talks about anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. Those are all earthly things. If you're, if you're living for the world, those things will control you. Those are the things that, that guide your life. So put those off. Don't live that way anymore. Put that to death. And then verse 12 begins, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What a blessed title. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Put on love and peace. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving to God. That's the, that's the heavenly life working its way out on earth. That's what it looks like. Set your minds that way. Put your mind on those things. We live in this, in this dual reality at the moment, right? We have this strange split existence. Physically, we live in this corrupted broken, falling apart world, but my life is rooted with Christ. Again, it's so easy to let this temporary world just kind of fill my view and take over the way that I think. Paul says, don't do it. That's not your life. This is not what's important. This is not what matters. You have a higher life. You have an eternal life with Christ. So set your mind on those things. Seek after those things. Run hard after them. This resurrection life looks radically different from the world. Radically different from the world. How is your life? Is your life entangled in these things? What are your ambitions? What are your goals? What are your hopes and dreams? Where do you put your your time, your money, your, your thinking? What do you watch? What do you read? Is it all oriented around this this world? Is it all focused here on this bad dream that we're stuck in that's about to end? Remember when you were learning to drive? Remember taking driver's ed in in busy, jam-packed, rush hour, downtown Bonneville? Both stoplights. And I'm driving along with the driver instructor beside me, and I saw... I don't know, I think it was a friend or someone I thought I knew and began to look to see who it was. What happens when you're a new driver and you begin to watch the sidewalk? The car goes with you, right? Fortunately, my driver instructor was paying attention that day and reached over and brought us back onto the road. But you look, you you drive where you look. 
Right? It's the same is true with life. What are you looking at? What are you focused on? What captures your attention the majority of the day? Your life is going to drive toward it. What's your mindset? Do we think about and contemplate the things of the Lord? Seeking after, to, honoring Him and pleasing Him. So that's, that's the command that we would seek the things above, set your mind on the things above. And then He gives the confidence to live the risen life. How do we do it? That's hard. We just have to admit we are physical beings in this physical world and it is really hard to get beyond that. It's really hard to see past that to something else that we can't, we can't taste it, touch it, feel it, smell it. Is it real? How do we do this? Verse 3 says, Seek the things that are above for because standing on this you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That glorious reality ought to, ought to fill us with this seeking and empower and give stability to us living this risen life. That's our confidence. You died to this world. That sinful, selfish you that, that used to live, if you've, if you've been raised with Christ, that person's been put to death. That person that was worthy of the wrath of God in hell was crucified with Christ on the cross. He's gone. And your new life is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden there. That's our confidence. That's how we live this resurrection life, is understanding, resting in this. The, the idea that it's hidden is significant. On one hand, I think it's just comforting to know, isn't it? As we're mocked and ridiculed by the world around us, as, as more and more every year our world looks at Christians and says, you guys are just nuts. You're out of touch. You're, you're so intolerant. You don't understand. You believe this book from how long ago? Are you crazy? The things that you do are weird. And we go, yeah, it's a hidden thing. You, I wouldn't expect you to see it. My life is hidden with Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't show itself the way you think it might in this world. It doesn't come out on top in every argument, in every cultural squabble. But of course, it's more than that. The idea of our life being hidden with Christ actually goes so much deeper. This is where our confidence is from. It draws richly on Old Testament imagery, particularly through the Psalms. To be hidden is to be kept safe. It's to be kept safe, to be, to be guarded and, and protected. It's not just that we can't find it, but that it's, that it's tucked away. It's locked up safe. They didn't have bank vaults in Jesus' day. If you had valuable treasure, what would you do? You took it out in the field and you hid it. You buried it somewhere so that no one could find it. Listen to Psalm 27, verse 5. He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me up upon the rock. Psalms are full of this language. God's taken and hidden your life. It means he's protected it in Christ. He has guarded it, locked it away, kept it safe from all danger. The temptations of this world will pull against it, will seek to destroy it. The devil himself will try to attack 
and destroy. Some days I fear my own sinful heart would put my spiritual life in jeopardy. My weakness, my doubt, my inability to believe what I need to believe, to do what I need to do, that I might commit spiritual suicide. And if this life was just my doing, if this spiritual walk was just my thing that I had created, that it was mine to keep it, if it was mine to have to hold on to grace, I'd have lost it a thousand times over by now. But it's not. God did this. This is his work. He raised me. And my life is hidden, is tucked away securely with Christ in God. This new life that I have is is inextricably mingled with the life of Christ. It's it's my life in Him. And and that, that life then can no more be removed from the presence of God than can Jesus Christ Himself. The miracle of the new birth. The spiritual resurrection that the life of Christ given to a dead sinner. God does that. And it can't just be taken away. It's not like a jacket that you just kind of put on and take off depending on the weather. It's a miracle on the level of of the creation of the world itself. It can't just simply be reversed and undone. My life in Christ didn't depend on me for its origin. And it doesn't depend on me for its completion. Praise God for that. So it's not about me working and striving and struggling. It's not about me trying to continually impress God. Trying to stay in God's good books. Fearful that I might say or do something. That I might take one step too far and lose it. Or God's love for me might someday grow cold. No, God started it. Listen to me. God finishes what he starts. Every time God finishes what he starts. He's not half-hearted in this. He's not absent-minded. He doesn't run out of energy or power or knowledge or wisdom. He finishes what he starts. This language is so constant through Scripture. We heard it from Marisa earlier. He's saved us and, and guarded us and kept us for an inheritance that is imperishable and unassailable. John 6, 39, Jesus says this. This is the will of him who sent me. This is God's will that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. No one, not one who was given from the Father to the Son will be lost. Not a single one. Not for any reason. All that are given will be raised on the last day. This shepherd doesn't lose sheep. We so often ask, can a, can a Christian lose his salvation? I think it's the wrong question. Can Christ lose a Christian? If he's purchased us by his blood and we belong to him, will he be robbed of what is his? Will he be found lacking of what he bought with his very own blood? No, absolutely not. Jude 24, so encouraging. Now to him, to God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
You feel weak? You ever feel you just can't hang on anymore? Do you ever feel like you're just stumbling and faltering and, and falling and failing? I'm not able to do this, God. He is. He is able to do it. He chose you in eternity past. He gave you life and he is able to keep you in that life and to present you before his Father with great joy. When God gives new life in Christ, he hides that life with Christ in himself and not the world nor the flesh nor the devil himself can do anything about it. Now there are many who may give the appearance of having been saved. Why? Living that way for a while, as Jesus talked about the parable of the sower, the seed goes out and the, and the plant springs up and, and it shows evidence, but it has no root, it has no true life. And, and so by, by walking away, by, by abandoning Christ and turning their back on the church, they show that they were never saved. But those who are truly his, those whom are, who have been given this new life, they are his forever. You have been raised and you are raised. Finally, in that confidence, then we know we will be raised. Again, there's no doubt to this for those who are in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Sorry, Josh, you're too early. <laughs> when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We will be raised. We are spiritually alive, and yet not fully, not completely. We still live in this broken, sinful world. We still battle with the reality of, of sin in this world in our own hearts. And Paul points forward to this great day when our spiritual reality and our physical reality will become one. We will be raised completely. Jesus is seated today at the right hand of God and he's waiting. Waiting for that glorious day when the trumpet will sound, the skies be rolled back like a scroll. He will come again. Every eye will see Jesus, no longer meek and mild and riding on the foal, the colt of a donkey, but dressed in a white robe, riding on a white horse, accompanied by myriads of angels with a sword in his hand and a crown on his head. He will return and claim his rightful place as king. And on that day, when Jesus Christ appears in his glory, we will appear with him in glory. This is astounding. When Jesus returns, we will finally have full life. Right now, we, we live in this dual existence, these, these two worlds. In Christ we have life, it's, it's hidden in God with him, but at the same time we have these mortal bodies existing in this corrupted world. We're, we're plagued by pain and suffering, we're tormented by sin and death and doubt and fear. We have one foot planted on the streets of gold in the, in the glorious kingdom of God and the other foot is still stuck in the bog of this world. So Paul says in Romans 8, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Anyone here groaning inwardly? 
Paul gets it. He understands. This is hard. This is not where we want to be. This isn't where my life is. This is painful and broken. But that day is coming. Oh, that day is coming. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53 tells of that day. Paul says, behold, I tell you a great mystery. We shall not all sleep. And by that means we won't won't all die. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. We will become immortal. We will be given new bodies. We will be raised with Christ. We will get new bodies and renewed minds. These sin-cursed bodies subject to disease and decay will be replaced, transformed into imperishable bodies, bodies that are not plagued by these things anymore. And our minds, our poor, troubled, doubting, sin-tempted minds will be washed clean, fully restored, saved to sin no more, seeing the glory of God in all of its fullness never again so much as touched by the prick of doubt or fear. We will never again, even in the slightest desire, sin. We will live in holiness with our God. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. What a glorious day is set on that horizon, church. Don't despair. Don't let the pain and struggle and frustration and and weariness of this world drag you down. Worship team, why don't you come prepare to lead us? This is not our life. This isn't it. We don't exist here. Set your hope on that future day. Let that fill your vision. Let that be what you think about, what you look at, what you fill your mind with. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of that empty tomb on that first glorious Easter morning, you have been raised with Christ. Even now, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And one day, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Church, let's stand. Let's worship our risen Lord together.
You see someone wandering into sin, love them enough to call them back. Be humble, be gentle, be kind. Go in with the assumption you might be totally wrong about what you think you see. Verse 20 has this beautiful promise. If you can restore them, you can bring back that wandering brother to the truth, back to the church, back to fellowship and restoration, you're saving his soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. So, yes, it is God who saves, not you. Yes, it is the Lord who will keep his own, who will not lose one of those whom the Father has given him, but he uses many tools to accomplish that end right? He uses the preaching of the word. He uses the prayers of the saints. He uses the loving rebuke of a brother or sister. Seek after the wandering. Let no one walk away from the church without our hands clinging to their ankles. Brother, come back. Without them clearly hearing the call to repentance, to restoration, to return to grace. That's not easy. That's harder than you think it is. It is rarely welcomed by the one who is wandering. Um, It is not culturally appropriate. You very likely will hear, my sin is my problem. This is my life. It's not your business. This is between me and God. Who do you think you are? And none of that matters. This is our calling. This is what we're charged to do, to care for one another in this way. And on the flip side, there's no greater joy than to see one who was, who was hurting and, and wandering into sin be brought back into repentance, into fellowship. People come and go from churches so fluidly these days. Pop in here, pop in there, come a day, stay away, stay a few months, come again. Um, that's not what the church is meant to be. We're meant to be a family. We're meant to be this this like military brotherhood, striving together day in and day out, not just Sunday mornings, um, but, but, but small groups. And in small groups, we're connecting and weaving our lives together and, and connecting with one another as we walk this road together. We strengthen each other. We hold each other accountable. We're, we're committed together. We should be so plugged in to a body of believers, that so, so committed and consistent to such a degree that that if we don't show up for a couple of weeks, people are asking questions. Hey, where you been? I missed you. I didn't see you in church. And that's strange that I didn't see you in church. Like we get so comfortable with like a once a month church attendance. I think it's crazy. Like this is to be our, our life together. Give yourself to the body of Christ. Give yourself to the church, the body in that degree. Um, and, and let me just say, expect that kind of accountability. Expect that the people here are going to love you enough to say, hey, where were you? We missed you. And then flip it and be on the watch. Be looking out for your brothers and sisters. You see someone having a a hard time or you you notice, boy, where's so-and-so been? I haven't seen them for like a few weeks. Call them up. Connect with them. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Just reach out. Hey, I, I haven't seen you for a while. Can we just... Can we, can we catch up? Can we grab a coffee? Can we go for a walk together? And then ask the hard questions. How you doing? How's your faith? Haven't seen you at church for a while. What's going on? Oh, well, I had COVID. Oh, okay. Glad you didn't come. Good to see you again. Glad you're back. Oh, well, I'm really wrestling with this sin or, or 
boy, I just, there's this division between me and another brother. Okay, let's solve that. Let me, let me help bring you back into the fold. This is how the church ought to operate. This is who we ought to be. So we're going to close in song this morning. But before we do that, um, I want us to give us some just real clear forward steps. I think there's a lot of appropriate application here. Um, so Josh, if you want to come forward and, and prepare to lead us. Um, but I want you to think about it in three categories. There's a lot of possible applications. Maybe, maybe you're looking around and thinking, boy, I haven't seen so-and-so for a while now that you mention it. I wonder where they're at. No idea what's going on. Maybe it's a cold. Um, maybe they're struggling. So, again, no shame in using your phone in church today. Um, pull your phone out. Send them a text right now. Hey, where you been? Hey, I missed you. Hey, how you doing? Hey, can we connect? And, and then pursue that. How's your walk with the Lord? Let that conversation go deeper than just, you know, how was work this week? Secondly, take a look inside your own heart. Are you staying healthy? Are you submitting to the, to the church, to the fellowship in that kind of close community? Do you have frequent opportunity to confess your sins to one another? Better yet, do you have people in your life who won't let you get away without doing that, who are going to look you in the eye and say, okay, let me have it. What's going on? And if not, you also need to pull out your phone. Send me an email. Okay, John, help me find a small group. Done. Awesome. Thrilled to do that. Or, hey, I'm ready to take the next step in, in membership. I've been kind of floating half committed. I'm ready to move forward in that. Fantastic. Or maybe you are connected and, and you've been neglecting it. You've not been transparent. You're not coming and bearing your heart and, and being honest about where you're at. Send your small group leader an email. Hey, can you help me with this? I, I need to go a step deeper. And uh, your small group leader is going to can help you with that. Next, next time there's small group, they're going to look at you and say, okay, how you doing? How you really doing? Don't just, don't just commit to it. Do it now. Like actually pull out your phone. Actually do it. Or maybe one last one. You feel like you're at the end of your rope. You know, John, I'm just beat down. I am exhausted. I'm faltering. I'm, I'm weak. I'm discouraged. Um, our elders are going to come up here. And during this next song, um, if you want us to anoint you with oil and pray for you, we would be so thrilled to do that, to stand with you, to encourage you, to build you up. And, and so, um, yeah, if, if, if a bunch of people come and you need to wait, please wait. Um, but do it. Don't, don't leave it. Um, we, we want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. We want to be doing this faithfully as a church. And so, um, Josh and, and Maurice are going to lead us in worship, and, and uh, the elders are going to come forward. We'll have two on either side. Um, if you want to come for prayer, come for prayer. Um, and uh, if not, um, just ask that as, this, as the song ends, if you would just kind of make your way out quietly and leave it kind of quiet in here as we, as we pray up here. There's lots of room to fellowship at the back. Um, but would you stand together? Elders, why don't you guys come on up? Um, and uh, let me just encourage you to walk this out.